Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the Investing Explained podcast series, where we're breaking down the complexities of the financial world to help you learn about how you can build yourself a better future through sensible investing. Today we're going to talk about tax-efficient investing, everyone's favourite topic. It's actually really important because it can make a huge difference to the value of your savings over time. When you invest in a general investment account, any returns you make might be subject to capital gains tax, where returns grow above a certain threshold, or dividend tax, where dividends are paid. So it's important to get into the habit of making use of the tax wrappers available to you. The main wrappers are individual savings accounts, better known as ISAs, as well as pensions, which many people automatically pay into as part of their workplace pension scheme. I'm delighted to welcome IG's Jeremy Naylor back. And we also have Svenja Keller, financial coaching and life planning expert and founder of SK Inspire, to help us learn exactly what options we have and what is most suitable for different people. Jeremy, welcome back. ISAs have become a staple of British savings. Government stats say 13 million adult ISA accounts were opened last year, with around half of their value in cash ISAs and half in stocks and shares ISAs. We'll start with the basics. Can you tell us what an ISA is and how stocks and shares and cash ISAs differ? Yeah, an ISA is an individual savings account. It's a a government-controlled savings account and it enables the um, holder to save up to £20,000 a year in cash, shares and unit trusts, free of tax on dividends, interest and any capital gains that might otherwise be applied. It's often referred to as a a tax-free wrapper. You can build them up year after year. Uh, but only up to that annual limit. And when you take the money out, it is free of any tax burden. Yes, it really is a, is a valuable a valuable wrapper. Um, Svenja, can you just tell us, if you don't have your, your money saved within, a, within an ISA, what taxes might you have to pay? Yeah, sure. Um, it, it, there, there are three different taxes really to think about. It's income tax on any interest um, that that you make, um, dividend tax on any dividends and capital gains tax. Um, If you realise any gains, you would pay capital gains tax on that. And I know the tax rates are subject to change, but what are the current rates? Yeah, so um, income tax rates, it depends on which bracket you are in. Um, um, And then you've got capital gains tax rates, which also follow the income tax brackets. Um, So the the income tax rates are 20%, 40% and 45%. Um, And then you've got um, the capital gains tax rates, which are at 10% and 20%. And um, dividend tax is 7.5% if you're in the basic rate band. 32.5% 32.5% in the higher rate band and 38.1% in the additional rate. Great, thank you. Yeah, so that can make, make quite a difference over time. Um, there are also different types of ISAs you can consider um, aside from cash ISAs and stocks and shares ISAs. The lifetime ISA is, is one of the newer ones, which was introduced in 2017 to replace the help to buy ISA and is designed to help with property purchase. Svenja, can you talk through how the Lifetime ISA works? Yes, of course. Um, The Lifetime ISA, or we shorten it normally to LISA, is um, quite a bit different to the standard cash or stocks and shares ISA. And it's the only ISA that really that combines property purchase and retirement saving. So the 
the general rules are anyone can pay in between the age of 18 and 39. You can open it. You can pay in until the age of 50, but you would have had to make your first payment when you were under the age of 40. The allowance for ELISA is £4,000 a year. That counts towards your £20,000 ISA allowance. So if you have um, paid your 4000 into the LISA, you have 16000 left for any other ISA. Um, and the difference to a normal ISA is that the government will pay a bonus of 25% of your contribution. So based on a maximum annual contribution of £4,000, you can get up to £1,000 from the government paid into your LISA. Um, yeah. Sorry. Sorry, carry on. I interrupted you. Um, you can hold cash or stocks and shares and your money will grow in the same way as Jeremy has already explained without any taxes. Um, you can withdraw money, but there are restrictions on the withdrawals. Um, so you, if you withdraw your money to buy your first home up to £450,000 or for your retirement once you are 60, or if you're terminally ill, then you can withdraw it without any penalty. But if you withdraw it for any other reason, the government will basically claw back their um, their bonus of 25%. So there'll be a 25% penalty. So you can see that um, there's quite a bit of a difference uh, between a, a LISA and a cash or stocks and shares ISA. And um, the bonus and the withdrawal restrictions actually resemble have some resemblance to a pension. So I would say that in terms of flexibility and access, the LISA actually sits between the stocks and shares ISA and the pension. Yeah, great. Well, we're going to come back to how you might pick between a LISA and a pension. But before we do that, Jeremy, can you just talk us through the basics of what a pension is, what the benefits are, how much you can pay in? Yeah, a pension is, is a, f a fund you can build up over the period of your lifetime of, of work, and it funds your retirement. There are limits to contributions along the way. Um, if you're working, you can pay up to uh, £40,000 per annum or your total salary, whichever is the smaller figure. And unlike ISIS, you cannot access a pension fund until you're 55 under current legislation, um, but that is rising in the years to come. Uh, and the income is subject to your personal allowance. I mean, Svenja's talked about um, the different levels at which you pay tax, uh, depending on how much money you have coming in. And depending on how big your pension is and how much money you withdraw, you will pay tax at that marginal rate. But the benefit, of course, of, uh, of an ISA is that um, against this is the fact you can withdraw uh, an ISA without any tax uh, liability uh, on that payout when you want to withdraw money. Yeah. And just digging into pensions a little deeper, if you're self-employed, you can set up a self-invested personal pension. If you work for a company, you're, you're going to be automatically enrolled in your workplace pension and your employer will also make contributions. Svenja, if you want to pay more into your pension, when might you want to pay more into your workplace pension or might you be better off paying into a SIP? Yeah, that's a really good question. I've been asked this a lot by clients. Um, I think the 
there are pros and cons to either option. And as so often, it, it depends on your priorities. Um, um, I will explain each um, pros and cons for each option, but I just wanted to make clear when we say workplace pension, we mean a defined contribution pensions, not defined benefit pensions. So paying into your workplace pension is simple. It's easy administration. You keep everything in one place. And uh, very often these types of schemes are quite cost effective as well. Plus, some employers um, offer matched funding on certain contributions. So that means you will, um, they will match your contributions that you put in normally up to a certain level. And that would be additional money from your employer. Um, and another point to consider with your workplace pension is whether your employer has the facility to make the contributions, your contributions by salary sacrifice because that's normally not only efficient from an income tax perspective, but it gives you a national insurance benefit as well. Paying into SIP, uh, on the other hand, is giving you a lot more flexibility in terms of investments. Most workplace pensions um, allow fund investments only, and some of them are quite limited in the number of funds you can choose from. So if your pension pot is quite large or you just want more control over your investments as well as um, access a much wider range of investments, a SIP is better for you really. And by wide range of investments, that could include um, uh, directly holding stocks and shares, purchasing exchange traded funds, or even holding a commercial property or part of a commercial property in your SIP. So the only downside of a SIP is that it's likely to be more expensive than the workplace pension. So there is a trade-off between investment flexibility uh, on the one hand and costs on the other hand. Um, the only one, one last thing I would consider is that you're not tying yourself in with whatever decision you make because you can transfer pensions at a later stage. So you could decide to use your workplace pension um, to keep it simple or to use some of the other advantages I talked about and then transfer to SIP at a later stage. It depends a bit on what the scheme providers, um, um, what they allow and what is possible. So in the first instance, I would always check with the provider. And if you're really unsure, then uh, do get advice because pension transfers are not always the easiest. Yes. And I'm right in thinking you can pay into both at the same time, so long as it's under the 40,000 for the year. Yeah, absolutely. You could have two um, at the same time if, um, if, you, if you wanted to have a, a bit of both um, or you wanted to have some investment flexibility within your SIP um, with extra money that you pay in. As you say, you just need to make sure you stay aware, uh, below your annual allowance. So now we've got a good idea on what the differences are between pensions and ISAs. Jeremy, do you have any guidance for new investors who are wanting to invest for the long term, whether they should um, opt for pension payments or, or an ISA? 
There's a case for both. As we've explained, there's a different uh, tax treatment on going into and coming out of and accessing both the different sorts of, uh, of of contributions and funds. And as Fenya was saying, there's a contribution limit of something over just a million pounds frozen until 2026, uh, where you can access your pension at the normal marginal rate. If it's anything above that, you get penalised. Um, there is no such um, uh, limit on um, an ISA, but there's a limit on contributions. So there's a case for both. And when you get to a certain point, because I think people do like the uh, the flexibility of accessing the money maybe slightly earlier than might otherwise be the case in terms of pension, you can get access uh, to an ISA. So I think there's a, there's a case for both. You do have to examine the benefits in your circumstances before making contributions and certainly making excess contributions if in the long term it's going to take your pension up above that lifetime contribution limit uh, when you are taxed at a different level uh, because the government um, has got this cap on uh, pension funds. Yeah, and Svenja, you, you talked sort of specifically about the lifetime ISA, which has pension-like qualities um, and, and also can be used for property purchase. What's your view on um, a lifetime ISA versus a pension as a retirement planning option? Yeah, um, that, that's another good question that a lot of clients ask, a, a lot of the younger clients. Um, and as so often, it it does depend on, on that on their goals and priorities, but also on their tax situation. Um, a, a lifetime ISA gives a bit more flexibility. So if you're not sure about um, whether to save for retirement or property and you want to keep that option open, um, a lifetime ISA has benefits. Um, a pension, if you are a taxpayer, and especially a higher rate or additional rate taxpayer still gives slightly more tax efficiency because you get a bigger um, tax relief on the way into the pension. So um, th those things are to be weighed up. My argument would be that maybe you should do a little bit of both. Obviously, in the end, it comes down to what your priorities are. But in order to diversify across different tax wrappers, it's always good to have um, eggs in, in different baskets. Yeah, that's that's always very sensible advice. I guess if you're a basic um, basic rate taxpayer, you pay 20%, whereas on the lifetime ISA, you get 25% back. So that's attractive, although the amount you can pay in is much smaller and you don't get your workplace contributions. Well, actually, the 20% the and the 25% are the same because the 25% is on your net contribution that goes in, whereas the 20% of the um, contribution is based on, on a grossed up. It's, it's calculated in a different way, but it comes out in the, in, in the same amount. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. Thank you. That's interesting. Um, well, I, an obvious reason you would pick an ISA, as, as we've discussed, is that you can get access to your money before you reach retirement age. And I think it's quite interesting how much money is held in cash ISAs, given that, that they're normally used as a, as a longer term vehicle. Jeremy, do you have any guidance on when you might pick a cash ISA or when you might pick a stocks and shares ISA? This is really interesting, isn't it? I think younger people seem to be funneled into this idea about going into what they know best, and that is going to a local building society or bank and getting out an ISA, which tends on the whole to be a cash ISA, which tend to have 
let's be honest with it, in the long term, dreadful returns. At the moment, when we've got relatively low rates of interest, the Bank uh, of England has uh, a, a base lending rate of 0.1%. So we're getting a very, very uh, poor return on your money. And indeed, when inflation is rising at the moment, if you put your money into one of these accounts, it is actually losing ground and your money is, your fund is shrinking against inflation. So uh, the cash offers these these relatively low returns against the potential for uh, stocks and shares. Now, the cash ISA, the money in a fund there is pretty much guaranteed. You're, you're not going to lose it, subject to other sort of rules and regulations around what the government guarantees and so forth. But a stocks and shares ISA, if you were to put £100 in each, uh, there's a good chance that the stock market or the stocks you put it into could go up or down. You could be a winner, you could be a loser. I think over the longer term, there's been plenty of studies that show that going into the equity market, especially if you're a young investor, if you can hold that money in there for 10 plus years, there are plenty of studies that show that you get a better rate of return than you would have got had you kept it in a cash ISA. So I think there might be advantages and disadvantages along the way. In other words, markets can go up as well as down. Past performance isn't a guarantee for future performance, all that. And I think in the long term, if you are prepared to keep your money wrapped up in these ISAs, you will benefit from going into a stocks and shares ISA. Yeah, I think that's good advice. People generally say you sort of want to, to have a five-year time horizon if you want to go into the stock market. Mm. Seems to be a rule of thumb. Svenja, a type of ISA that we haven't mentioned yet is innovative finance ISAs. Um, some of them offer very attractive returns, but I know the, the take-up's been low and, and there are some questions over them. What do you think about innovative finance ISAs? Yeah, innovative finance ISAs allow peer-to-peer -peer lending as the underlying investment. And what that is, it basically means you as the individual lend directly to companies and other individuals without the bank in the middle. It can be quite high risk. It depends on who you are lending to and how your risk is spread across different borrowers. Uh, unfortunately, when I think of innovative finance ISAs, I immediately think of the London capital and finance scandal, which is still being sorted out now. Of course, this was not just peer-to-peer -peer lending or mini bonds. There, there was major fraud involved at the company level as well. Um, but there was also an element of, of marketing these innovative finance ISAs and comparing them to cash ISAs. So just to be really clear, peer-to-peer -peer lending is a lot more risky than holding cash. If you're comfortable with the risk and can afford to lose your money, then an innovative finance ISA could be for you. As you said, Mary, the returns can be quite attractive. And if you do understand the risk and feel okay with taking it, then that could be a good thing for you. But overall, I still think it's quite a niche investment. And because of the risk and probably also because of the recent scandal, it's not, um, it's not mainstream. Yeah, I think that's right. London Capital and Finance was was quite a confusing one as well because the company was regulated by the FCA, but the products weren't. And I think that caught a lot of people out. So if you do want to go for these, check that the, the products are regulated. I think. Yes, very true. Um, there's also, also flexible ISAs, which were introduced in 2016 and are an interesting variation of the ISA, but few platforms actually offer them because they're allowed to choose whether they offer them or not. Uh, Svenja, please, can you explain how flexible ISAs work and, and maybe give an example of when they might be suitable? 
Yeah, flexible ISA is a, a almost a variation to cash or stocks and shares ISA. Um, the the difference is that they would allow you to draw money out and put it back in as long as you do it in the same tax year. So you might have an ISA with fifteen thousand pounds that you paid in in previous tax years, and you can take out that fifteen thousand and put it back in in this same tax year plus use your 20,000 ISA allowance for the same tax year as well. They're quite useful, I think, to give some short-term liquidity. So an example might be you secure a property purchase now, but you're waiting for a bonus payment from your employer. So you could use your ISA money for the property deposit and then use the bonus payment to fill up your ISA again, um, as long as it happens in the same tax year, of course. Um, it comes with a little caveat, because if your ISA is invested, you will need to weigh up the costs and market fluctuations um, before dipping in and then reinvesting at a later stage, because that might um, incur trading costs. It might also be that you, you sold at a different point and then go in at a lower end um, of the market when you reinvest. So this example probably works a little bit better for a cash ISA. And whilst the option is there as a backstop, I wouldn't really rely on a stocks and shares ISA to provide short-term liquidity. Yeah, I think that's, that's good advice. Do, do you see much demand for flexible ISAs? Um, well, I, I'm, most people, I think they look more for cash and stocks and shares ISAs and, and don't realise the difference of whether it's flexible or not. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure how well marketed they are and how aware individuals are. Um, I, I don't think people specifically ask for it, but I have seen people make use of um, filling it up again at, at the end of the tax year if they have dipped into the ISA throughout the year. So it's more of a, um, a, a, a good realization at the end of the tax year that this is possible to fill it back up. Than, than specific demand for it. Yeah. And another variation of the ISA is the junior ISA. And these allow you to invest up to 9,000 a year for a child tax-free until they're 18. Could you, Svenja, can you give us some, some more detail on how they work and what the pros and cons are of, of using a junior ISA? Yeah, junior ISA is a really good way for parents or grandparents to um, start building up investments for a child. Um, uh, parents have, um, they're subject to what we call parental settlement anti-avoidance rules. So if they save into a normal account, if they make uh, returns of more than £100, it will get taxed back on them. This isn't the case in the junior ISA. Um, plus, of course, everything grows tax-free and can then be converted into a normal ISA once the child turns 18. Uh, the downside is probably that the child has full access at the age of 18, so um, that there might be some worries of what, what um, uh, a child will do with it um, as soon as they turn 18. But equally, with some good education, um, it, it could... Um, give them a good starting point to build up funds and understand investing and dealing with money. Um, there's one little quirk that I always um, tell my clients. Um, uh, if you're 16, you can have a cash ISA. So that would fall under the £20,000 rule. 
um, but you can also still have a junior ISA. So you actually, if you wanted to maximize allowances for your children, um, obviously I realize that's quite a big amount, but uh, that could be a good way of maximizing the allowances. And can you pay into a lifetime ISA for a child? No, the lifetime ISA starts at the age of 18. Okay. And what's the what's the process for setting up an ISA? Yeah, the process is very similar to, to an investment account. Um, the specific details really depend on the provider and um, um, whether you're opening it as a workplace perk or an individual account. Um, I would say um, I would go through the following steps to, to pick the right provider and then open the account. I would kind of set myself some criteria, what's important to me, costs, investment flexibility, easy administration, and then list them in, in the uh, range of priority, in the order of priority. And then I would research the markets and make a list of the providers and compare it against my criteria. And once you know which provider you go with, you can contact them. A lot of them allow you to open accounts online, but if you want a more personal service, you can contact um, some of the, the more boutique or, or the wealth managers. Um, it depends on what you, you're picking. And so you just tell them what you want to set up and they will tell you what they need from you. Great, thank you. And there's one more thing I want to pick up on from what we said earlier. I think I mentioned workplace pension schemes and you were absolutely right to say that we were talking about defined contribution schemes. The other type being defined benefit pension schemes. Could you just tell us what the difference are between the two? Of course. Um, so defined benefit pensions are, um, are a thing of the past, really. There, are, there aren't many around anymore, um, not many open ones. So defined benefit means you would have had a promise from your employer um, that you would, in retirement, get a certain um, amount paid to you every year. And that would normally rise in line with inflation. So that's why it's called defined benefit. Your benefit was defined in retirement. It would normally be um, a, a, a fraction of your um, either your final salary with that company or an average salary, um, depending on the rules of the scheme. So you might get um, um, 160th for every year you've worked for the company and that's based on the salary, either your average or your final salary. Defined contribution is, is different. All the employer promises is to make a certain contribution for you every year. So they don't guarantee um, what benefit you will get. And those contributions get invested. And de depending on how much your money has grown and how long it's been within the pension, you can then draw out of that pension. Um, but it's not defined. It doesn't. Um, uh, there's no guaranteed benefit coming out of it. Yeah. So people who work in the private sector are likely now, especially if they're starting to pay into their pension, to have a defined contribution scheme. How do pensions work for people who work in the public sector? Yeah, very true. The public sector still has defined benefit pensions, um, mainly. Um, some of them... Uh, are not guaranteed, so they, the government will pay out um, as the benefits become um, payable. 
Um, but a lot of them are very generous schemes. And um, what's really important is a lot of them have inflation protection. So your benefit will go up with either inflation or a certain part of inflation or a certain percentage. So your money while you are retiring isn't losing purchasing power. And are you allowed to top up um, into a defined benefit scheme in the same way as you are a defined contribution scheme? No, there are some options that you can transfer in and convert um, in, into um, further benefits that are guaranteed. Um, but normally that's quite complicated and you would have to take advice whether making contributions is better than um, then buying further years or further benefits in a defined benefit scheme, that is quite a complex, more actuarial co uh, calculation and comparison you would have to make. So um, in that case, if you are thinking about that and if your scheme allows it, then I would always take advice. Yes, when you get into the details of pensions, they're, they're really quite complex. Um, but that was a really great overview of how ISAs work, how pensions work, what your different options are. I'm afraid it's all we've got time for, but thank you very much, Svenja, and thank you, Jeremy, for coming on. Great. Great. Thank you so much, Svenja. I'm sorry that, that we were so late.